Right, here we are again. Hello. Hello. We're in the same room. At the same time. <laughs> Talking to each other and to you, dear listeners. Uh, yeah, welcome to the next episode of the podcast. So, really exciting podcast for me. Good. Um, really exciting about reading for pleasure and two people. I think that was the original dream, wasn't it? The academic and the teacher. Yes, we have. Um, we've got and there. So, yeah, so thank you to those two because we've managed to, yeah, they fulfilled our dream. Yes, we're very happy. And that uh, um, the conversation that they have is uh, really interesting and helpful from that point of view of bringing some theory with practice and some really reflexive conversation mm. uh, is it possible to have a reflexive conversation of course what do i mean reflective it's conversation? possible to do everything anything <laughs> it's very optimistic for a monday morning but thank you <laughs> uh, but there are lots of things in it that um as as a primary teacher even though you know focusing on maths i found fascinating and i know obviously from your perspective as an English teacher, there were things that... Yes, really interesting. And, and the kind of secondary world and the primary world and how things are, um, you know, kind of different and similar was just really fascinating, I think. So, so yeah, hopefully a, a good listen. Yeah. Enjoy, everybody. We will see you on the other side. Um, I'm Verity Carter. I'm an English teacher at Oakmore School. Um, and have been, I think this is my fifth fifth year now, um, having done my PGCE at Chichester with Debbie. I'm Debbie Hickman, the PGCE secondary uh, coordinator at the University of Chichester, and I have always been and continue to be interested in the concept of reading for pleasure, and having been on... Uh, quite a significant journey both alongside and with Verity discussing reading for pleasure. I'm quite interested that that's the article that we're now going to talk about because I think what's been really interesting about this article, reading it recently um, is how it's taken on from where we first encountered Kremin and the reading teacher concept and I'm in t- I continue to be interested in how we can make use of that work in secondary. Mm. So, As am I. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, um, I-, I was just going to add, um, so two years ago I completed my MA dissertation looking at how the good work that's been started in primary schools may or may not be transferable to a secondary setting? So I was really interested, because I think my area of interest remains primarily how teachers of secondary English Mm. can in and of themselves be reading teachers. And I think my position is even stronger than that, actually, is that they ought to be, they should be. Many of them are motivated. So it's the work, I think, of um, Andy Goodwin in particular, who talks about... Uh, teachers become teachers, secondary teachers become teachers of English because of a love of literature primarily and I think that's borne out year after year in the, in the types of candidates who present themselves as, as wanting to teach and there are more varied interests than literature we have lots of media students and language students but the thing that they all have in common is they begin 
their explanation of why they want to be reading teachers, uh, by, well, why they want to be English teachers, by talking about, I've always loved reading and want to pass on something of that love. So for me, the idea of a secondary English teacher who is not themselves somebody who reads and somebody who teaches reading, um, a reading teacher who reads, is it? What's, her fra- what's the phrase that she uses? Reading teachers. Readers who teach and read, teach, 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 and teach to read. Yeah. So that, um, the synergy between the two, I think should be sitting at the heart of a secondary English teacher. But I continue to be um, flummoxed by, I think, perhaps challenged by how we might promote more of that in secondary English. And that's what we were talking about earlier. Mm. So this article, I think, shed some quite interesting light on some of those ideas. Was there anything in particular that you picked up? What's been on my mind recently is, um, in the article it mentions about the performance of valuing reading for pleasure in schools and the, the danger that things might be put into place so that it appears, look, we are promoting reading. And what it says, um, schools can be sucked into performing reading for pleasure institution where events and competitions exist aplenty. The former can be superb evocations of emerging communities with pop-up cafes, but they can also be manifestations of one-way traffic um, with schools telling parents what they need to do. Um, The idea of what we can do that is meaningful and will have a lasting impact rather than as a one-off, hey, look, we've solved reading, Uh, that is what... I have been pondering of late. By of late, I mean the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you're one of many, and, and I, I wonder whether some of the things that the article says gives us perhaps some hints at why the tension is even greater in secondary than I'm sure it is at primary. Uh, because it, it, the description of um, the idea of schools can be sucked into performing reading for pleasure is written by Kremen in the context of primary. Mm. And yet you and I would recognise that there are things about secondary practice that might be described as being that. And I think what's really interesting, a couple of things that she says in the opening, are that um, although a lot of the academic research... There's long been a history of academic research reminding us of the connections between reading for pleasure and improved attainment, as well as improved opportunities in life. It's not just that children who read for pleasure do better at school, it's that children who read for pleasure go on and are more likely to be invested in democratic behaviours and more likely to uh, be independent thinkers, etc., etc., etc. So the connection is not just one of attainment, Mm. but with an attainment agenda driving practice in school. It's not a surprise, is it, that we see sometimes or hear about performance measures rather than genuine engagement. Um, I think what's also interesting is the point that she makes that reading for pleasure has never been mandated before. It's Mm. It's never been written into the statute. And there's a tension there, isn't there? How can you tell people that they have to teach children to read for pleasure. Can I grab a book from my bag? Yes. I was reading on the train on the weekend. Um, On your recommendation. Sorry, I just had to go and grab um, Robert Eagleston, Literature, Why It Matters. I was reading this on the train and this passage struck me so much that I even put it on Instagram, that's how... (laughs) 
how meaningful I found it. He's actually quoting Doris Lessing. She argues that there is only one way to read, which is to browse in libraries and bookshops, picking up books that attract you, reading only those, dropping them where they bore you, skipping the parts that drag, and never, never reading anything because you feel you ought or because it is part of a trend or a movement. As a professional teacher of literature, I feel a little conflicted about this obviously right advice. My students clearly ought to read the books we plan to read together, but I'm also aware that forcing someone to read a novel or poem can change that experience. Mm. And when I read that, I, it doesn't really offer any answers. No. But it does, I think, really capture the tension yeah. between wanting them to love it and also being aware you can't really teach somebody how to love something. Yes. Which I suppose links back to Daniel Pennock as well, doesn't it? Daniel Pennock is a French uh, philosopher, mm. writer, who has written about reading and was the instigator of the ideas in a very popular poster which you can see uh, in classrooms called The Rights of the Reader. And he describes in both the book and been captured in this poster a number of rights about reading, which include the right to choose how you read, what you read, mm. the right to skip pages, the right to reread, the right to put something down and pick it up again, the mm. right to read aloud. Um, I can't remember. The, the whole, right not to read? Yeah. The whole host of rights, mm. which but right up against what we might think of the practice of being an English, being a teacher, yeah. but in particular for the secondary context, being a secondary English teacher. Um, because the idea that you might, for example, skip, it's been in existence forever. That's what editing is for. Uh, we do it with plays. Mm. Directors do it with play scripts all the time. Editors of uh, audiobooks will do it. We'll, yeah. sk mm. we'll cut bits out. Mm. Um, I know that in my own practice, and there will be teachers who might skip bits mm. in terms of coverage in a class novel because there's not either the time or this bit doesn't seem to be particularly interesting. But it strikes me that in all of those instances, it's not the reader that's making the choice. It's somebody else making that choice for the reader. Mm -hmm. And if we link that to some of the work that's been emerging recently from, for example, the Mason and Giovanelli journal articles that I shared with you at the Teach Meet recently where they're arguing that even when you're discussing novels that are being taught as part of the curriculum, as opposed to part of a reading for pleasure agenda, even that kind of reading isn't an authentic reading experience because it's being prefaced by the teacher making decisions about how it will be read, why it will be read, the nature of the discussion will be decided by the teacher who's bringing to that experience all of her own mm. pre-established knowledge of that text and of reading more broadly and that that might interfere in some way or another with the reading experiences of the pupils. And in the classroom I've, tr I've been mindful of that since you spoke about it two weeks, two weeks ago mm. and yet I'm still thinking back today even though reading Animal Farm was year nine I've tried to allow them to just experience the arc of the story without me interrupting and I haven't said right now we're going to do a bit of writing about what Squeela just said. But it is me that's choosing when we pause to say, can we just clarify what's just happened? Or, ah, what? You know, I'm the one that is, I'm still doing that today, choosing when we have those moments. And yet, if 
this hasn't happened, I don't think. But if one of the students were to suddenly look up in amazement at something they've just been shocked by, I wouldn't necessarily stop the whole class to explore what it was that they just pieced together or they just worked out or I might even tell them, shh, come on, we're reading now and shut it, shut it down. That's awful, isn't it? But in, even though I'm trying to interfere as little as possible, I'm still interfering. <laughs> but, but then you have to, we have to ask ourselves, if we're not interfering, then what is the job that we're doing mm. as readers who teach and teachers who read? Mm. Um, because there is, there is other evidence, a body of evidence, to suggest that actually children who are still emerging as readers need experienced readers to model Thank for you. them. And that's what you're doing, aren't you, in those moments when you're saying, let's what's just stop just a minute happened? and what's just happened there, is that you're supporting immature readers in acknowledging something about the text that might have passed them by. It's really interesting, this idea of controlling too, isn't it? Because I don't think it's a sort of... It's, is it about power? I don't know. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's about wanting to support. Mm. And that's what we're here for as the adults in the relationship is to support, develop, nurture. What was the word that you used when we get in the way of their first reading? You're almost foregrounding yes, um, the, what yeah. the experience is going to be for them. And therefore, the, the experience that they have is not an authentic one. That's right. Um, so the classic example that Mason and Giovanelli use in their work is the, the idea that you might ask the question before reading the relevant chapter of, of Mice and Men, is how significant is the mouse? Mm. And actually, the mouse might not be significant the first time you read it. But when I read that, actually, that article, I was reminded of something that you said to me in subject study once. We were talking about something similar and about the importance and the pleasure of rereading. And mm. you told me the story about the time when you were reading Harry Potter and, you, and the significance of, of Nicholas Flamel oh, not yes. striking you the first time you, when he was introduced in the, on the train journey. Yeah. And it wasn't until you reread, and then you, um, because writers foreshadow all the time, don't they? They foreground all the time. But the idea is that they're laying the groundwork rather than shining a torch. And that's the, that's the relationship we're having to navigate, isn't it, as teachers, mm. is that there are times when it might be where we're laying the groundwork and there might be other times when we're helping to direct the torch. And I wonder whether um, in reading for pleasure we are doing enough of the laying the groundwork. Because I'm struck by a couple of the phrases that I've underlined in terms of identifying and defining what reading for pleasure means. And that she's been very clear, Kremin, in this article, to say reading for pleasure is independent choice-led reading. Mm. And there was something a bit later on where she talked about... Oh, yeah, she talks about the pedagogical practices that underpin it, that include that they are reader-led, they are informal, they are social, and they're with texts that tempt. And I wonder if we were to apply those four pedagogical practices and look at our teaching through the lens of those four pedagogical practices, how much of the teaching of literature and reading within an English lesson 
fits those pedagogical practices. I don't know very many of them that are reader-led. They're certainly not informal. They might be social depending on the extent to which... How much time you have. How much time you have. The nature of the class. Yeah. How much time you dedicate to talk, discussion, dialogue, and how much is dedicated to writing. And with texts that tempt, that we of course think that they tempt, but they might not always. And if the teacher is the one who said, this term we are reading this text, what do you think? Mm. It's not going to be a conversation of shall we read it or not, it's a conversation of yeah. what are your first impressions of this thing we are definitely going to read because yeah. that's what I've decided. Yeah. I read an extract from Great Expectations with my Year 9 class the, obviously the extract where he first sees Miss Havisham and they were tempted and they asked me Miss can we read this book as a class and I said absolutely 100% we'll do it got all the copies out of the cupboard and we would have our Friday lessons I saw them period five end of the day both weeks of our timetable so I thought right we, we'll read Great Expectations It'll be fabulous. So they were tempted, they were interested. We had all the opening with Magwitch, really exciting. Um, And um, the mystery of Satis House. And then we got to London when Pip's a bit older. And it it then became a struggle to maintain that temptation because um, other things must have been drawing their attention elsewhere. It, it had taken us a long time to reach that point, only having 45 minutes a week to read it. And um, although it is a GCSE text, it has never occurred to me to study it in depth with a class because um, I, I, I feel at GCSE, would it, in, would it hold their attention long enough because there's so much of it Mm. and there's so many different phases to it but I will always hold on to the fact they were tempted absolutely I'm wondering too whether I'm interested I was interested in talking about going back to where we started this idea the quotation that you picked out about um, schools being sucked into performing reading for pleasure and the connection that Kremlin makes with um, the problem with this that is that it encourages children to read for recognition and for reward rather than for intrinsic motivation and of course the connections being between wanting to read and reading likely to be the thing the motivation that improves you to continue to do it you know how Stanovich's mm-hmm. Matthew effect um, whether some of the reading practices that I know you and I have discussed in the past are about children's reading for extrinsic motivation so I'm thinking in particular about your reflections on Accelerated Reader mm-hmm. when you were working on your dissertation. Yes. I still am not sure of the role of Accelerated Reader in terms of fostering a love of reading. Renaissance have funded a lot of research that shows it does foster a love of reading. Um, but then to, you know, as, a, as an English teacher, it doesn't sit very well that the, it is about tracking data and maybe I'm just wary of anything that's about collecting data when it comes to something so qualitative, but the very idea that you can categorise books in the library into levels of challenge 
and put a sticker on them um, and say to a child, you're on the purples, um, that's your level. Um, I think in my first year teaching, I saw that Of Mice and Men had quite a low reading level according to the database, but that's not a straightforward book no, by any means. Um, so so I've, re I've read some of the accelerated reader research. There's a couple of reports um, by Topping right. who has summarised some of the data emerging from the accelerated reader programme. And actually what's really interesting about it is the issue that you've just identified is that using quantitative data as the lens through which to look at something which is clearly in this study being presented as something which is qualitative. Mm -hmm. And Accelerated Reader is absolutely about quantitative data and therefore it only captures certain things. So the topping, one of the topping reports that I'd read had reminded us of, the, of that there's a really interesting paragraph in it where it talks about objectifying the measuring of reading because mm. otherwise it's very difficult to do. It seems strikes me there that there's a tension too, as though you can objectify an experience which on the other hand is being mandated as something which is pleasurable because we're not all going to find pleasure in the same thing. Therefore, you can't objectify it. But what was interesting about that report is one of the one of the data sets that was being analysed was the recurrence of certain titles across the accelerated reader data set, and that data was therefore generating lists of who is the most popular writer. I think it's oh, how yeah. David Walliams came out on one list as being you know Great Britain's most popular children's author. And what struck me about that data is that not the headlines, and the headlines weren't a surprise at all, were some of the figures that were sitting underneath. For example, that one of the most popular books um, on which quizzes were taken in Year 9 was Of Mice and Men. Aha, okay. And you're, so what, what, you're, what, what would you make of that? My aha is that's a book commonly read in English classes in Year 9 because it's been taken out of the GCSE curriculum. We've all got copies of it in the cupboard. We don't want them to miss out on Of Mice and Men. So that's when we read it. So children are therefore doing tests. They're doing Interesting. tests on the most commonly read texts in their English lessons rather yeah. than the texts that they're most commonly reading for pleasure. So um, that wasn't really unpicked very much in the report, but it was an interesting observation from the outside of the limitations of quantitative data when you're talking about something. I do, see, I do see the value in some of that quantitative data. Um, in a secondary setting, um, I tend to split reading into reading for purpose and reading for pleasure. And in terms of the complexity of the new GCSE specs across a whole range of different subjects, we do need to be able to monitor reading in terms of their vocabulary and whether they are able to decode complex grammatical structures, that kind of thing in order to make sure we're supporting our students as well as po possible as they move towards those final assessments. It's always been the reading for pleasure side of it that I felt it doesn't fit in the same way. I think we, yeah, you've got this practical need that is useful data for teachers of all subjects, 
and yet talking I don't feel that reading for pleasure is part of the same conversation that's really interesting mm. really interesting Our thanks to Debbie and Verity for the time and their, their thoughtful conversation. Um, we, we really appreciate what they've put into that and, yeah. and allowing us to capture the conversation for where their thinking is yeah. um, and, and reading the article that, um, that Theresa Cremins recently published which, and, and the link's available on the webpage. I really, really liked listening to um, not just the, the content of the conversation, but the way I think you could tell these were two professionals that were really grappling with these ideas mm, mm. and at their current point of thinking. Mm. So mm. I'm really grateful for the integrity and the professional honesty that they mm. brought to the conversation mm. that was really mm. um, exciting to listen to. Yeah, I, th I mean, the complexities of being a teacher, how do I balance this with this? Mm constantly how do I make this choice that is pro this and this you know against this choice which is pro that it is just uh, really comes across well I think in, the, in that conversation and so yeah like you I, I'm very appreciative of, of them showing that because that's such a crucial part of being a reflective and effective teacher. Fantastic. Well, we hope that you found things in it that were uh, prompted your thinking and hopefully will prompt conversation um, with your colleagues. And um, do get in touch as ever if there's anything that you want to discuss as a result of listening to the podcast or reading any of the things that we've suggested are uh, connected to the ideas about reading for pleasure. Um, you can comment on the webpage where you find the podcast. You can comment on Twitter underneath the um, uh, tweet about the podcast that's gone out or you could email us and it would be lovely to hear from you until next time dear listeners goodbye bye <laughs>